0: Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and we are really excited about today's topic because it falls right in line, I think, with our October theme of Halloween. We're talking about the plague, right, (laughs) the very darkest Thing we could probably pick, but this is actually a super interesting article that we published in Clinician's Brief in February 2019. And with this article, I'm so excited to have our very first repeat guest, Dr. Radford Davis. Thank you for rejoining us today.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back.
0: I'm, I'm excited we didn't scare you away the first time. Speaking of Halloween and spooky things, I'm glad I'm not on your list <laughs> and that uh-huh. you were willing to come back and, and to cover this topic because I think plague is very important. We know it's kind of geographically important and has you know, some geographic specificity. I still think it's important for all gender practitioners to read this article, but again, When we look at these articles, I think about what else could we be talking about? So what are the conversations to have behind all of this content to help fill in the blanks? And so, I mean, for me, I looked at this article and I said, plague, like not the type of thing we keep at the forefront of our diagnostic minds. And and, and we think of this as rare, but actually you talk about some pretty surprising numbers of infection in this article, not just in people, but also in pets. So how prevalent is plague in pets, really? And are there are there changes in prevalency patterns?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think plague, Yersinia pestis, is a disease that has, over the years, over the decades, become more and more well-known, more and more on the radar screen of public health and veterinarians as we're learning more about it. There aren't a lot of good numbers, but I think... What we what we know is that in the United States, the as far as pets go and pet numbers, the, the pet that's most likely to come down with plague and that we count most often with plague is the cat. And I think that's because the cats are going outside. They tend to be cats that are hunters and, and are collecting the mice and, and eating the mice and, and being exposed to plague in the fleas. So we have better numbers about that than we do with dogs. But again, I think that some of these numbers, when we look at cats, that we have to think about. Well, maybe not all the cats make it back home. We're not, not all the cats make it to the veterinarian. Not all the cats are diagnosed properly. So I don't think, as far as trends go, that we're seeing necessarily higher numbers in cats than we were, say, 15, 20 years ago. I think if we're seeing any increase in numbers, that that is really related to maybe better awareness and better diagnostics. So, and again, I go back to there aren't a lot of good trends to hang our hats on, the states that that we have Yersinia pestis in, they are, when they get samples, they're aware of it and they they count those cases. But again, there are probably a lot of cases that you're not seeing and not diagnosing.
0: Well, I mean, I that makes a lot of sense because again it may not be on the the forefront of everyone's mind and again, we have the so there's consistency and prevalence. What about geographic expansion? Are we seeing this stay pretty geographically relevant or or is there an expansion of exposure?
1: Well, one of the things about plague is it's really it's it's kind of interesting is because you could have a state that has very few cases for a number of years, and then suddenly, boom, you have a, a number of cases. And for example, uh, we had a uh, outbreak in Idaho, not too long ago, 2002, I think it was, 2000, Oh, sorry, 2016. And this was in a number of cats that Idaho had. And yeah, Idaho, had, Idaho has seen your Sydney pestis for a number of years, but it's not one of the top states. As far as human cases or dog and cat cases, so we see these sometimes sometimes pop up that were sort of quiet, and then and then we have cases. As far as expansion goes, if we go back to when Yersinia pestis entered the United States, we can say sure it's it's really expanded. So it came right. in the United States in 1900 in San Francisco, and has since made a slow march eastward, and now we count about 17 states in which Yersinia pestis has been. Detected in wildlife, but not all those states have dog and cat cases. Not all those states have human cases.
0: Well, being from southeastern um, United States, I'm excited to know that there's a few diseases out there that didn't start with us that we're <laughs> we're sharing with the rest of the country. Because I,
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and and let me just add that when we talk about today's society about the transportation of of animals and people, that 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 can propel. disease into new territory and and i'll give you just a very brief example was back in the uh, early 2000s a uh, man and wife couple uh, in new york city were uh, diagnosed with plague and this was at a time when the united states was very concerned about bioterrorism they presented at the emergency room and had the classic signs of plague and were diagnosed with plague well it turns out they were from new mexico they had picked up plague in New Mexico were incubating, felt fine, I guess, during their travels, but they were incubating when they arrived in New York. Then they showed signs.
0: I mean, that's the scary part, right? That we have these incubation periods. We have times that animals of all types, some animals of all types can be moving through life feeling okay. And that's exactly how we're going to be, you know, transmitting. And and on this point of transmission, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit or I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about the sylvatic epizoonotic cycle. Epizootic.
1: Right. Epizootic, correct. So plague has sort of an interesting epidemiology. We have a what's called a sylvatic or wild epidemiology. And in the wild, it can be maintained in some rodents that don't really die very frequently. So this is a maintenance host, uh, maintenance uh, cycle uh, maintained by fairly resistant rodent species. That's the sylvatic enzootic cycle. And the epizootic cycle is when this spills over from the maintenance host into more susceptible species, and then we see an outbreak. So I'll give you an example. So rabbits and prairie dogs and some chipmunks, ground squirrels. What we can see with those species is that when they encounter plague, they get infected, they develop a severe bacteremia, and then they die. And these are what are considered amplifying hosts. So in the sylvatic epizootic cycle, we can have large die-offs in prairie dog colonies that will tip us off, hey, there's something going on there. And, and, and the um, the park rangers that are in the Southwest, who are aware of this and they're watching their prairie dog colonies and they they will put out notices to people who visit the park of plague warning not to approach uh, wildlife they will be in contact with the state health department if they're seeing prairie dog die-offs or or ground squirrel die-offs and then they'll come in and take samples and confirm yes or no whether it's plague and then they'll they'll cordon off the the area and put up public warnings uh, through uh, media, radio, um, newspaper, things like that. But so it's this amplifying this epizootic uh, cycle that is really the biggest risk for humans, because if you're entering in, you're going hiking in the Southwest, you're camping, and you're entering into this area where there's a a concurrent die-off going on, an epizootic, and you're unaware of it. Well, when these animals die, well, they've left behind fleas and these fleas are now searching for something warm. So that could be you. That could be your dog. That could be your cat. So if you're, if you're living on the outskirts, you've built a home on the outskirts of a major city, say New Mexico or California or someplace else or Colorado. If you're kind of out in the wilderness and you've built into an area where you've got plague and maybe you, you can uh, have this uh, episodic cycle happen in your, in your area. Well, when your dogs and cats go outside, they're not only able to pick up fleas, but they're also able to now uh, encounter these these rodents that they might eat and and pick up uh, plague that way.
0: Well, and and okay, so to kind of take that and to drill it down just a little bit more, I mean, I think rodents and fleas are are commonly known transmitters. Like I think for for most of us we know about that. But then in this article too, you talk about direct and indirect contact with these infectious exudates, inhalations, bites, scratches. So there's other ways of transmission we need to be concerned about, right?
1: Sure. And so there are reported cases of people contracting plague from cat bites uh cat scratches dog bites from people who have skinned animals and not worn gloves a really interesting example sad example was a uh, biologist working in the grand canyon area who uh, discovered a mountain lion who had died he put it in his pickup truck took it back to his home And in his garage, he did a necropsy on this mountain lion. Well, the mountain lion had died of plague. And Mm -hmm. he had conducted this necropsy without any protection, without wearing gloves. And he also then contracted plague. So this is a risk factor for hunters, for veterinarians who are living and working in plague endemic areas. If you have an animal that died of unknown causes, or if you have an animal that died of, of potentially plague signs, then you have to consider that a suspect case, and you're definitely going to want to take precautions. I mean, you should be taking these precautions no matter what. If you're if you're going to be doing any necropsy or skinning an animal as a hunter, you should be wearing gloves and you should be taking proper uh, precautions.
0: Well, you know, it it makes me think though about how important client education is and becomes in these aspects because what we know is human medicine isn't talking about these things. Like I know so many people who hunt and hike who in all areas of the country, and I, I know for a fact their human doctors have never said, hey, have you ever thought about or been concerned about plague? And so we really have to be doing that thorough history, finding out where these pets are going, finding out the areas where they are and, and having that educational bit, right? I mean, because they're not going to get it anywhere else,
1: yeah, definitely. I think if if you're aware of you've got clients who are hunters and having conversations with them, um you can educate them about the risks of of um, contracting diseases from hunting and and dressing the animals in the field using your bare hands. And you know there are many other things. Besides Yersinia pestis, that you can pick up from doing barehanded field dressings of animals uh, or, or doing necropsies. I don't think there are too many veterinarians that do necropsies barehanded.
0: I hope, not. Uh,
1: I hope not. But we still run across people, maybe, who are hunters who do this the skinning of animals, the dressing of the animal barehanded. So definitely uh, you know, reaching out if you. Can be involved in your community and community education education of your clients in any way possible whether that's putting information up on your website flyers in your waiting room Whatever you can do, I think it's important because again, it's not just your cine pests that hunters have to worry about. We've got leptospirosis, we've got potentially tuberculosis in uh, Michigan or Minnesota in deer. We've got tularemia, which is tularemia is is not something you want to contract as either. So yeah,
0: no, you know, I I have to say, I think if I studied public health, I'd never leave my house because <laughs> you know you're absolutely right. There there's so many. So many things. And, you know, you can't teach common sense, right? Like like wear gloves when you're taking dead animals apart, especially if you don't know how or why they died. But again, reminders and education, it's its what we're here for. You know, veterinary medicine was was made to protect people. And, and I think it's an important reminder for us all of the time. Now, I kind of want to go back to something you, you were talking about before. We were talking about all this travel and transportation and, and even people, right, who are traveling when subclinical. And sometimes it seems like through this whole disease process, they may remain subclinical or the symptoms remain kind of vague. Do you think there's more exposures and maybe we're even seeing more than we think because we aren't seeing the disease process or the severity of disease we think we would need to?
1: You mean sort of like that uh, we've got some cases that are subclinical and they may be transmitting?
0: Well, in other words, do we have clients coming in with these sort of ADR dogs that don't feel good? Right. And okay. the, it's, again, it's pretty subclinical or, again, vague. Like when, when we read about the symptoms of plague, it, they seem to be, they could fall under a myriad of things, right? So are we missing some of these cases or not like identifying it as plague because of that case? And then, of course, perpetuating yeah. that transmission.
1: Right. I do think plague is underdiagnosed. And part of the reason for that is what we've seen is a recent, I won't say development, but maybe recent recent recognition of more cases of plague in dogs than we have in the last 20 years. Traditionally, dogs uh, have been fairly resistant, considered fairly res- resistant, and that maybe they might show some fever, maybe some lethargy, not eating, but then they don't die and then they recover. We know now that dogs can die and they can develop a lot more clinical signs than that. So I think, and they can also be a source of human infection as well, just like cats. But I think we might have over the last several decades been in contact or seen dogs that had plague and didn't recognize it. And I think with cats as well, you know, you, you get outdoor cats that that are gone for a few days and then show up on uh, the doorstep. They have a fever, they're not doing well, they're anorexic, and then uh, maybe they die before the owner can get them to the, the, uh, the clinic and, and get diagnostic testing done. I, whether these contribute to human cases, I don't really think so. I, I think we're pretty aware in the United States We, we don't have a lot of human cases every year, a handful, maybe a couple of handfuls at the most, but these are usually well tracked back and, and the origin of most of these cases is, I won't say it's figured out in all cases, but it's, it's researched quite a bit.
0: Okay. All right. So, so then walk me kind of through this process. I know that we shouldn't always be looking for zebras, But then when we have these cases presenting, when do we really kind of let our diagnostic brain start entertaining something like plague?
1: Well, I think if you're a veterinarian and you're working in a plague enzootic area, that if you have a dog or a cat with some of the traditional clinical symptoms of plague, that that should definitely be on the differential list. It should go maybe not to the top. It kind of depends on the clinical signs, but it should be of consideration. So if you have a cat that's presenting with a fever, lymphadenopathy, maybe dyspnea, lethargy, uh, maybe dehydration, this is a concern. And if you're in a plague in zootic area, you can should think, ah, this cat might have plague. At that point, if you haven't got your, your gloves and your mask on, your N95 mask, that's when you want to put those on. Yeah, it may already have been too late. You may already have been exposed, but from that point on, you're going to cut your exposure down considerably. So then you're going to take precautions. Uh, you're going to address the treatment of the animal. You're going to get the, the animal into isolation so that it's no longer a risk to anyone else or any other animals in the clinic. Get your diagnostic uh, samples, submit those for testing, and get the animal on antibiotics. And then depending on your testing and, and your your suspicion, you might also, pretty soon, you might also be on the phone with the public health officials talking to them that you, you suspect you have a case of plague.
0: Okay. So so that's where it, I think things can also get a little bit confusing. So when we need to report, that's who we're calling, is we're calling the Department of Public Health and we're letting them know of these concerns, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, so if you're submitting a sample of an animal, dog, or cat, a laboratory for Yersinia pestis testing, most likely that uh, laboratory is also going to submit that to the state health department, but I wouldn't count on that. You should, once you get that laboratory test back, be on the phone with the state health department uh, confirming that test.
0: I just want to clarify then, are we calling public health when we're sending these samples out and saying, I'm suspect, I'll call back and let you know, or do we wait until we have confirmation?
1: I think if you have an animal that meets the clinical signs of plague and you're living in a plague and zootic area and you're worried enough that you've donned your PPE and you've got the animal in isolation and you're treating that animal as if it had your pestis, I think then you should be calling the state health department.
0: Okay. And then, so we talk about these respirators. I have to say, how common are these going to actually be in general practice? And what if you don't have these? And on top of that, like you said, what if by the time we get there, we think, oh, no, now I've been exposed. Do we need to be calling our doctors? What do we do?
1: Right. So N95 is very efficient at uh, uh, filtering out your pestis and lots of different bacteria. Unfortunately, these have to be fitted to individual faces. So you can buy in lots of different manufacturers make N95s. You can buy them at uh, your local hardware store, Home Depot or Lowe's, places like that. But again, they should be fitted with you so you know that you've got the, the the mask that conforms to your face and works the best. So they're not really expensive, and I think all clinics should have them on hand, not just for plague, but for anything that that you're doing. if you're if you're doing um, a procedure where you're going to have a lot of aerosolization potentially, that you should probably be wearing an n95. now if if you think, okay, uh, I'm going to don my n95 now, but geez, I've already worked with this cat for the last uh, 30 minutes before putting it on. That's okay put it on, protect yourself, give everybody else a mask, make sure everybody else is aware of what's happening and that you're going to get that cat into isolation. Then you're going to call the state health department. You're going to talk this case over with them. Yes, I suspect plague. This is what I'm doing. I'm take, I've am i taken samples. They're going off to the lab. They will probably help you. They should help you in sending the samples to the proper laboratory. And that's usually the public health laboratory that the state works with. So those samples will go to the state public health laboratory. And then that lab will report those samples directly back to the state health department, as well as to you. And the state health department will consult with you and they will say, okay, we want you to either A, go visit with your physician. They'll probably wait until the sample comes back, the the testing, uh, the results. And then they're, they're going to say, we want you to go to your physician and talk with them, but we, we probably want you to be on a prophylactic uh, regimen of antibiotics. Or they may say something like, go to your physician, we're going to recommend that you do a, a health watch, a fever watch. And if you notice anything unusual in your health, uh, then go visit your doctor, and then we'll probably put you on antibiotics.
0: Okay, and then what are we going to do with our exam room, our, our waiting area, everywhere that pet may have been, the other people who have encountered that pet? How are we going to clean up after this situation?
1: Yeah, this this is a challenge because you can imagine the case where somebody's bringing this cat. And this is, this is what commonly happens. The cat has been gone for a couple of days. The owner discovers the cat again. It's not doing well. It's, it's definitely ill. They pick the cat up. Right. They're cuddling it so it, the cat is just inches from their face, or maybe they're, maybe they're giving the cat kisses. Um, and then they're bringing it to you and they're, they're walking through the waiting room. Maybe they're leaning on the counter of the desk as they're talking to the receptionist and then they go into an exam room. So everybody in, in that area, the exam room, the receptionist, they all need to be evaluated for your sinia pestis plague exposure. If this cat or potentially dog has pneumonic plague, anyone within about two meters of those animals is considered exposed. So if that dog or cat that is being brought in goes to the waiting room, everybody pretty much in the waiting room is exposed. Everybody in the clinic pretty much who has walked by that animal is now exposed. And the state health department will, will figure that out. They're going to ask you to look at your appointment books. They're going to find everybody who was in that waiting room and they're going to interview all your staff and everybody's going to be assessed for need of uh, health watch or prophylactic antibiotics.
0: And are the people who entered the waiting room after the cat going to be exposed? Is it is the people that are there present with the cat?
1: That's a good question. Um, Yersinia pestis is not like, it is, it is aerosol transmitted. It doesn't hang around in the environment as long as say measles. Measles we know is the most, most contagious infectious disease we know. We know of uh, it. It can hang around in a room for two hours. You're seeing pestis not as long, but I think anyone who has come in after that pet has been in within um, a given length of time, and I think the state health department will will look at that. I think within uh, a, a given length of time, I'm going to say maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. That they should be evaluated for uh, exposure as well, but again, don't hold me to that hour because the state no. health department may uh, may differ on that.
0: Of course, and then I guess my next follow up question to that is obviously if you start saying plague to your client, this is going to obviously induce some emotional. And, you know, scary responses in them more than likely. And they're also going to have the question, what do I do? I've touched my cat. I have other pets in the household. The cat was in my car. So I think they're going to have a lot of questions. Obviously, we have public health officials, but they're in front of you right then. And you don't have any answers because you maybe haven't called public health yet. How do you de- how do you deal with the client in this situation?
1: Yeah, so I think if I had uh, the client brings in a, a dog or cat and uh, I'm, I'm suspecting plague, I'm doing my workup cats in isolation i've taken my samples and i've called the state health department i think at that point the state health department will interface with the um, the client they definitely will interface with the client they will call them and talk about the human exposures from a veterinary side if there are other animals in the household then we're going to consider we're going to learn a little little bit more about the history and the story behind things we may consider all of those animals exposed, in which case we may wanna just put them all on prophylactic antibiotics. Again, it kind of varies on a case-by-case basis. Um, You know, if this was a cat that had never come back in inside, for example, never come back inside, uh and they found it maybe out in the garage and then they went directly from the garage to the veterinary clinic and never took the cat back inside the house where the other cats and dogs are then those those animals are going to be okay Um, there's no need for them to be put on prophylactic antibiotics but if this cat uh, had been around the other pets and definitely if this cat had pneumonic plague then we're going to probably want to put those animals on prophylactic antibiotics
0: Okay. All right. I mean, that is so much to unpack and, and it's, an, it's great information because I hate for it to be the kind of thing we're trying to figure out how to handle appropriately in the moment. And that brings me to my keep it brief segment. And you know, from experience, we never really do keep it brief. So no pressure here. What kind of SOPs can be put in place within the clinic to increase the safety of the clinic and the clients and, and the personnel? You know, is there, is there a protocol we should be following? Is it more regional? How do we do this better?
1: Well, there are some resources for veterinarians. The National Association of State Public Health Veterinarians, so NASPHV.org. They have a a document called "Compendium of Veterinary Standard Precautions for Zoonotic Disease Prevention in Veterinary Personnel." Very long title. And what this document is designed to do is help veterinarians assess in their practice how can I mitigate the and, and reduce the risks of zoonotic disease in my veterinary personnel, what kinds of things can I implement in my practice? Everything from what should the workers be vaccinated against to when should I be using an N95 if I'm doing a dental uh, uh, prophylaxis, what should I be wearing? Um, So there are those kind of basic biosecurity issues and plans that they cover in this compendium. And I think that would be a very good read for anybody who's running a veterinary clinic. They also have a model infection control plan that you can take and sort of alter it a little bit for your veterinary clinic now for plague specifically the cdc has a website of on plague and on that website there's a page with lots of information specifically for veterinarians and then if you are in a plague endemic area where most cases of plague are occurring are in colorado new mexico arizona parts of California, sometimes Oregon and uh, Idaho. Many of those states have a lot of good plague information, some specifically for veterinarians. And the other thing to think about is many states have state public health veterinarians who work in the state health department. They're a great resource because they have one foot in the veterinary field and one foot in the public health field. So if you think you have a case of plague or you wanna talk about any zoonotic disease, pick up the phone and call your state public health veterinarian because they can point you to resources and they can walk you through um, whatever help you need.
0: You want to hire great people? Find them from Clinicians Brief Career Center. Connect with candidates who grow your business and effectively care for your patients and your clients. Post your job today at cliniciansbrief.com backslash career-center. Now that I've given you all of you know the questions I can possibly <laughs> fit into this time frame, is there anything that's pressing and important that you want to let us know?
1: No, I think, um, and maybe I said this, uh, maybe I didn't say it forcefully enough that that we are recognizing this more in dogs than uh, than we have in the last twenty years, and it is. We, we've now had some human dog to human transmission, which we've never had before occur. We had a very good scare at Colorado State uh, Veterinary School. Um, they had a dog with plague that presented in the wintertime, but The signs were so vague and different that they did not think it was plague. And it wasn't until quite a few days and diagnostic, much more diagnostic testing later that they picked this up. That dog had been wheeled throughout the teaching hospital for a couple of days, exposing quite a number of people. So I think that and then the outbreaks that we've had recently uh, related to dogs and plague, we're, we're picking this up more in dogs. And that's just unusual because, like I said, 15 years ago, I would just tell my veterinary students, and in dogs, we occasionally see some fever, lethargy, maybe not doing well, but they don't die. Uh, everything's okay. But now we're seeing, well, not only do they de- that they die, but they can transmit it to people and those people can come down with disease. So it's definitely emerging uh, as a, a problem in dogs.
0: Wow, that is amazing. You know, great information. I think this is really enlightening. And, you know, sometimes it is, it's important to chase zebras, right? Sometimes they are zebras, so we have to kind of know everything. And in some cases, it might not be a zebra because this is something I think that there, it might be out there more than we're thinking about. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for joining us again today. Are there any other resources you would point us to other than the CDC?
1: Again, I think I would, for those veterinarians who work in uh, plague endemic areas, plague zoonic areas, look to your state health department for guidance, for documentation, resources. Talk to your state public health veterinarian. They are really a remarkable resource. Again, having that one foot in the veterinary field, one foot in the public health field. Um, they can provide you with so much guidance on zoonotic diseases.
0: Thanks so much. And thank you again for all your hard work and your information, your outstanding article in February 2019 Clinician's Brief, Plaguing Cats and Dogs, a Public Health Concern. Dr. Davis, once again, thank you for joining us. And I look forward to having you back again soon.
1: Thanks very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to today's guests for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast, is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.